0: Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode 91, nine, one, and the first episode of what will hopefully be a better year, which is 2021. 2020, the year of covid masks, rigged elections, <laughs> riots. All these all these wonderful things that have happened. That, that year is gone and hopefully this next year will be Uh, a lot better, where maybe uh, people can learn to be a little more civil. Anyway, um, you know, one of the things that other podcasts have that I don't have are all those (laughs) goofy legal disclaimers. So, you know, I get, yes, everything here is my opinion and does not reflect on the non-existent sponsors of this podcast. Um, Any resemblance to people living or dead is purely coincidental, and Put in whatever other kind of uh, um, <laughs> warning that you need to legal warning, purely for entertainment purposes. What whatever that has to be, yeah. Or or as they started putting on Ruger revolvers years ago, that I could never understand. Read instruction manual before attempting to use this firearm. Something something like that. Anyway, um, got some got some good stuff to talk about. First is. As you know, I bought a Sig P210 Target and the front sight fell off, okay? And and it's after a few shots the front sight was not on the gun anymore. So, you know, the cost of a P210 Target is not inconsequential. It is a expensive piece of kit, but it's a piece of kit. It's one of those things you buy once in a lifetime. So, so this is kind of, was kind of a once in a lifetime purchase. Was not real happy when the front sight fell off. That was that was uh, pretty bogus. However, I will have to say I called Sig great customer service and this was after reading about how bad their customer service was on the internet I said oh no this is gonna be a nightmare and you know I look like a fool because I, you know to to your immediate family and friends you look like a fool you buy this you know expensive firearm and here it comes goofed up then you know it's gonna be a month or two or, or whatever before it comes back and and so you just you feel you feel really sheepish about it well I called SIG got great customer service they had me a label that same day and I put it off into the uh, uh, system and of course I'm I'm worried that you know it's gonna somehow fall into the ocean or wind up with Tom Hanks on Castaway but you know FedEx held up their end of the bargain they got it there very quickly and uh, so on their website sig basically says look turnaround is three to four weeks just kind of the way it goes so um, and if you have to have something refinished it's a lot longer it's the you, they can add like another two or three weeks to that so i was not expecting to see this before the end of january well it just the awesome part was i think it was december 29th yeah december 29th i got a message from them saying hey here's the tracking number you're Thing is coming right back to you and i had it on new year's eve so it was really gone a total of uh, i guess eight days something like that including the transportation so i feel that that was you know pretty first cabin uh you know that was first class customer service and there to be commended and it came back it's fixed right um you know everything is good to go this pistols reassembled and it is it is totally good to go and and i really feel that i don't know what if it had been a 320 or a 365 i don't know they would have turned it around that quick i don't know if there's some preferred service because you know the uh, face it the um, um, 210 target costs like three times what a 365 would but, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, whether I got, you know, preferential or, or uh, first class treatment because of the gun I bought, or if that's just the way they roll, um, I was very, very pleased. Had it back, and it's it's really great. So they did a great job. There's a reason that SIG has very quietly uh, become this dominant force in the gun world. And part of it, I think, has got to be good customer service. Uh and, and really good products I mean you know their what is it the tango four rifle scope looks to be an excellent absolutely excellent value for the money um you know that's something that I would definitely consider buying uh, their optics are all very very good um their their rifles they did just had a they their bolt action rifle they just had some some recall on i I don't really know much about that. I do know their 556 rifles are very highly regarded. As a matter of fact, the um, oh, 550, 551 or whatever, our friend of the podcast and another uh, friend of ours have both those. They are nice guns. They are very nice guns, and I wish they would still make those. Uh, instead, they've kind of gone to making the uh, you know M4 AR-15 style variant. Uh, but I think that their original design was a winner. I mean, it was it's a really good gun and something a little bit different. And the beauty is it, of course, takes Stainag magazines, which are everywhere. But SIG customer service is outstanding. Um, I was very, very pleased, and I feel like I got treated like um, I was a valued customer. So um, kudos to them. Kudos to SIG. There's a reason why they are such a dominant, dominant uh Uh, company and you know it kinda goes back to a few things I'm saying I they've diversified you know you can get uh, a lot of optics through them you can get even ammunition through them I don't think they make it I think it's subcontracted out but I wish they would actually make their own ammo Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later but SIG is a great company and uh, I am not surprised that they are in many ways, a dominant force, if not dominating the handgun market right now. So, a couple other things. Uh, Georgia Senate elections are coming up on us. Uh, I mean, and of course, you know, (laughs) it's looking worse and worse for this guy. This guy, Warnock, is a a freaking nut. You know, he's... Yeah, he, he did some really bad stuff. And I guess the latest part of his bad stuff is obstructing a child abuse uh, investigation in 2002 at a summer camp you know this is just you know I, I really have a problem with people who take advantage of children in these kind of group or collective activities you know the whether it's a priest whether it's some other adult a scoutmaster whatever else who's out there molesting kids that are in their care at a camp um, or or some other kind of activity where they're away from their parents, those people are the worst. They are absolutely the worst. And apparently this guy Warnock is somebody who, while he probably did not participate in it, was somebody who tried to cover it up and sweep it under the rug. And uh, that is a very, very, very bad thing. You're going to sweep all that under the rug. Oh, a couple other things that uh, that have happened. You know, sometimes we put a burden on our military leaders that they just have a hard time handling. And a guy who I I don't know him personally, I just kind of ran across him professionally. But uh, there's a poor guy up at Joint Base Lewis McCord, who was a special forces commander, uh, commanded a special forces group and wow like just after Christmas he he snapped and you know threatened suicide beating his wife standoff with the police a uh, terrible situation and I hope that guy gets the help he needs but it just kinda goes back I always look back on you know what is it that we do to these guys sometimes we give them one high stress job after another And if they don't take these high-stress jobs their career basically ends um, ignominiously sometimes they just wind up getting kind of pushed aside so they they feel obliged to do it but boy it is easy and every everybody's point is different but you can crack under the pressure crack under the pressure so here's and and here's another situation of you know not the army I served in so how did this happen kind of a case the first female has made it through the special forces q course now before we we're not going to get into this whole thing about how were the course standards changed nobody nobody really knows and and I'm not really saying I don't know but that's not what I'm talking about is like this person who's obviously an army captain she is was at Fort Bragg or wherever she was and she's dry firing her pistol as practice in her apartment and lo and behold it's not as dry as she thinks because the thing goes off the thing goes off and she was fortunate it didn't did not hurt anybody but now there's you know obviously a big investigation and you have to look at someone whose weapon skills are that poor Um, basically, you know, Hey, can that person function on a team? Can that person be someone who executes special operations? And we'll see. We'll see what happens. My, my deal is since nobody got hurt is I'm sure it'll be swept under the rug, but later on down the road, something else may happen. You know, something else may happen. Um, you know, it just, it's inexcusable it's inexcusable to handle a weapon like that when you're not under stress when you're not under there are accidental discharges all the time they happen all the time but a lot but almost all those shots are put into shot barrels where they're supposed to be It's kind of overseas where you're handling a lot of loaded firearms and things Um, since i'm a gun guy it never happened to me never even close to happening so i have a harder time understanding it but a lot of times fatigue stress are contributing factors but those should not be factors in your apartment when you're just practicing some uh dry fire drills and trying to you know improve your your scores a little bit that that should be a place where you have no accidents there's no excuse for an accident there okay next thing ooh BATF and braces of course BATF they put out the big letter <laughs> then they rescind it when they realize there's a lot of legal things going on with this number one um you know it's out of their purview to regulate braces it really is they regulate firearms and not accessories and you know to declare something in SBR or it seems that's what they were doing what they what they want to do is declare these pistol braces as stocks and they therefore are sbrs um you know regulating a lot of things. what are they going to regulate next slings optics all this stuff that we stick on um all this stuff we stick on weapons i don't know um i don't know where this is going i know that they they have got themselves into a logic problem Where they can't say hey there's four or five million of these braces out there and now these are de facto SBRs well okay they're not causing a problem so therefore are the other SBRs causing a problem and do they in fact need to be regulated do we need to regulate something that's not a problem why are we doing that and especially going back to 1934 we talked about the origins of gun control in the last podcast And, you know, we know that, you know, silencers or sound suppressors, as they are more accurately called, that was a, a big part of that was because of poaching. You know, back in 1934, in the throes of the Depression, people did a lot of poaching so they could eat. And, you know, that's never been accepted. That's always been kind of frowned on. So they thought if you have something that muffles a rifle shot, that would make, you know poaching a lot easier so that's that's why that was sawed off shotguns were just a another myth of well bad guys saw off their shotguns anybody with a shotgun is going to want to really shoot birds with legitimately shoot birds with it or shoot um you know buckshot and shoot hunt with it um anybody who saws it off is obviously a criminal now the other side of the coin was there were some short barreled shotguns that were used for snakes and and just defensive purposes. You know you can have why can't you have the most the weapon you want for defense? And especially when it comes to something like that, it's your property. you own it. The government doesn't own it. Who are they to tell you what length the barrel should be? If you decide you need a shorter shotgun? Who are they to say, well, it has to be at least 18 inches. Well, why? Well, so it won't be a sold-off shotgun. Okay, well, what's the problem with those? And now nobody can really tell you. Because, frankly, no one uses sold-off shotguns in crime. No one does. They, if they did, you would see stacks of them on the news. Like everything else that they proclaim as a, would proclaim as a problem, you would see stacks of these things. So, you know, BATF is, wants to go after braces, but they, they can't get the logic right. They, if if the logic is braces and SBRs are bad, the fact of the matter is they've been legal for, you know, years now. And people have been using them and they're not creating a problem. Or problems that need to be addressed by the ATF. That they are just fine the way they are and they don't need to be... They don't need to be... Uh, uh, regulated and taxed and and kept track of in a registry the nfa registry at all they just don't so that's the pro that's the bind they find themselves in and uh, so it could very well be that braces braces may go away as an issue they just may go away ah, a couple other things i've seen out there wolf ammo prices now if, if you're like me I I actually shoot Wolf ammo and Wolf style ammo, you know the Russian import ammo, um, out of a couple different guns, and I like I like their 7.62 by 39. I think it's really very good. Their 7.62 by by 54 rimmed and their 5.45 ammo. Oh, that's so good. I don't even hand load that stuff. I don't, I don't know where I would find brass for 5.45 anyway, but Um, you know you don't really reload that stuff because you can get it economically it's great quality and you know reloading is is something that is very time intensive so you spend the time on the things that are most expensive and that you can produce so uh, Wolf Ammo very very good but you know the price just went went berserk with all this I think I've seen I know I've seen a thousand round case of Wolf 556 going for six hundred and twenty-one bucks. That is an outrage. That's that's an outrage. I mean, I'm sure the I'm sure the Russians. Yeah, Vladimir Putin is not raised the price on us or or anybody else. This is just, you know, gouging. That's just price gouging. Um, they know they can get it, and so they can they get it from panic buyers, and so they charge it. Uh, remember that. When you see this stuff outrageously priced, remember who's doing it. And uh, when ammo becomes plentiful again, we'll pay them back in spades. And maybe they won't be in business anymore because nobody will buy from them. I saw Wolf 9mm. Now, this is 1,000 rounds. Now, if you shoot 9mm in competition or even just as a for recreational use, you, you know 1,000 rounds does not last a long time. A thousand rounds sounds like a lot of ammo. I bought a thousand round case. You, you think, man, that's gonna last a while? Shoot, that's uh, you shoot two hundred rounds at a range deal. That's going to the range five times. You know, you can you can divide it however you want to, but um, you know it doesn't last that long. And normally those things were selling for. I think they were selling under 200 bucks, just under just around 200 214 215. That's what a 1000 rounds of the stuff costs, About 20 cents a round, 21 cents a round, whatever shipping is and all the rest of that nonsense. Um, this is obviously twice that. And you know it's actually it is actually more cost effective than a lot of the brass case <laughs> stuff cuz they want you know, again, six hundred bucks for that for a thousand rounds of that in nine mm So um, the shame of it is, with both the Wolf 556 and the Wolf 9 millimeter, is that you know it's not reloadable. So there, are, and I know there are probably some people who've done it, but reloading a steel case is not not under. Uh, I knew somebody who used to reload steel case 45. You know the 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 Wolf. You know those things. And it, it's hard on dies. it's hard on a lot of things and so i i personally wouldn't do it there's enough brass cases out there that um, you go to any range you can still pick up lots of nine uh, millimeter or and then if you're lucky 45s so it, it's not worth to me it's not worth doing but you know when i buy some brass cased ammo i always kind of look at the fact saying hey you know if i can recover most of these I can put them in my little bucket of of whatever caliber it is and I can replace the, you know, it's kind of helping my brass supply, but that's not the case with Wolf ammo. So paying big money for it is really something that hurts. It hurts the wallet pretty bad. Okay, our next topic actually came in as a question, but I thought that uh, since I will probably incoherently ramble on and on about this, that would probably be better to move it up into this section. Uh, You know, we talk about 3D printing of guns, and I I do listen to, the reason I moved it here is because it kind of comes under gun culture and gun creators type of deal. You, You get a lot of podcasts or things about 3D printing of guns and how that's going to revolutionize gun ownership and how it's going to make obsolete all of these technical laws that are that are out there on the books, especially in the United States and Europe, which the only places that really have, you know, a lot of institutional structured gun control laws. I suppose you could put Japan in there and authoritarian regimes, but, you know, basically, you go to Africa, or used to be Latin America, I don't know if it still is anymore, but you have the money, you can get a weapon, and nobody's really going to try to bust you for it. Um, So anyway, we go in, there's 3D printing. And so the question is, what do you think of 3D printing? Will it revolutionize gun ownership? And and I have to say exactly no. Um, I've never thought 3D printing was really anything other than another means of production. Um, And to put that into context, which is something I always like to do, you go back to before World War II, guns were made out of basically forged steel and walnut, all this good stuff. And you had to have a machine shop to make it. And, and I'm only kind of going back to pre World War II because I, I know you could go all the way back to Eliphalet Remington and he had a little shop and hand powered tools and made rifles. I, I know all about that. But we're really talking the modern, the modern era, 20th and 21st century. And and so you know you needed you needed machine tools in order to make a firearm really even even a simple firearm you needed machine tools and you had to mill steel and you had to drill holes and you had to shape walnut and and do all those things not something that was beyond a talented machinist or a person who made a living you know by make tool and die makers and all these kind of people who understood machining steel and and what in the different types of steel and everything else they could fabricate firearms that was no problem and in fact in World War II we used this kind of technology and companies like Remington Rand and um, Rock Ola Jukeboxes and Underwood Typewriters and you know Saginaw steering, you know, some of these people who made things out of metal and understood machining and how to how to just make something out of raw materials, um, they they were making firearms and they were cranking them cranking them out. So, you know, we that that kind of skill has all always kind of been there. You you could have somebody who could make a firearm. You could make firearms in any kind of well-equipped machine shop. World War II and beyond and probably before World War II also so you know you have that then we start going into the the phase where firearms at least military firearms aren't made out of walnut and steel so much steel anymore that perhaps the steel that they're using is more of something that's stamped out like the STG-44 and later AK-47 you know it's stamped uh a lot of other guns were, were kind of sta- had stamped technologies too m3 grease gun had some stampings you know that they that they used um let's see so did the actually the late model 03 a3s had stamped trigger guards and stamped parts so you know you had this thing of metal stamping which which meant it was it was simpler to make but you still needed tools to do that and in fact you needed some kind of specialized tools to do that then we got into the materials starting to change so we're going from we're going from steel and walnut and sometimes just steel uh, in the case of the grease gun in, in particular to something that looks like the first aluminum framed pistols We're now all of a sudden hey we're using aluminum because guess what aluminum will hold up almost as well as steel and it's a lot easier to machine and and uh, do and therefore you could make and this is theoretical but you could make a receiver out of aluminum and it's a lot easier and you didn't need a lot of fancy equipment to do that you know yeah you do need the lathe and the mill and the drill presses and all that but not beyond the capability of a lot of machinists and then you have these gunsmiths who were kind of doing the same thing they could modify a lot of things they really weren't making a lot of things on their own, but then that came later. So manufacturing a weapon, especially a simple weapon, like a sten gun, you know, those things were just any subcontractor that could manipulate any kind of metal was making parts for the sten gun. And I mean after the war, countries like Israel, Finland and a few others were using surplus sten guns and because that's something that they could support. You know, they could make the repair parts for those, they could, they could easily do that. If they'd wanted to, they could have set up, if there weren't so many surplus ones, they could have set up a factory and produce their own. And if you go to, if you go to places like the Khyber Pass or even, even places where insurgencies are taking place, you see people manufacture guns on their own. Um, you go to Uh, Vietnam in the early, very early years when the French were there and in the very, very early 1960s, uh, Viet Cong had little workshops and they would they had ammo, they could run across ammo and they would fabricate you know some simple guns to shoot it in. So did the same thing happened in the Philippines several times. Um, Even on the streets of America they used to have things called zip guns where maybe it's just a steel tube and you have a bolt that's got a nail as a firing pin and you got a a big wonk and rubber band and you pull this thing back put it put around in the the uh, kinda loose chamber let it go and that nail when that thing slams forward that nail will will uh, actuate the primer I mean zip guns were something that that were out there so it doesn't take a lot of sophisticated know-how sometimes to make something that will actuate a cartridge fire a cartridge then you go to you know Kyber Pass region where you know they made very credible copies of a lot of different guns and you know if you get past the point where they're they're spelling things backwards and you know making English letters backwards and all this because they really don't understand what they are uh, there there are some Kyber Pass copies of like say a Martini Henry that even on gun forums now, somebody will pop up saying, hey, is this thing real or is it kyber pass? And the, the experts have to give it a once over. Now they can't test the metal because it probably isn't made out of the same kind of good metal. It's probably, you know, melted down scrap, whatever they could get. And in fact, I think it was ten or fifteen years ago a bunch of three oh three martinis came in. And and there was a big argument about whether these things were real or not and then the consensus finally was no these are these are copies and they're well made enough so that they could almost pass the thing that tipped them off was the a barrel length and stock configuration four stock configuration and the bands and things like that 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 was really the tip-off but if you just had the action um, even the experts were were uh, debating back and forth so there's a lot of firearms expertise out there we go into this phase where people are now building 80% and they're doing a few simple machining operations to finish off the receivers, and they can do Glock receivers, they can do 1911 receivers, AR receivers. Um, there's also flats, stamped flats that can be folded and turned into firearms receivers for, you know, other things. So unless it's a, unless it's an old school milled steel. Uh, receiver, you know you can you can find a workaround and, and a reasonably competent machine shop or even a hobbyist now could make these. Plus we've had another big innovation was for for like 30 years now, you can get a t- machine CNC machine. And basically, have the file of what it needs to make on your computer, and you hook the two together, and it tells your computer and that file, tell the uh, machine what to make, and it makes it. And you know, those things are most suited for softer metals like aluminum, but you could make an aluminum receiver. You know, Colt Commanders were had an aluminum receiver, 45 caliber and 38 super, for probably 60 years now. So, uh, there's you know. This technology is out, and what's the real difference between a 3D printer and maybe one of these tabletop CNC machines? Well, the the, the cost is one. Um, I mean, even today, I think the tabletop CNC machine will cost you several thousand bucks, and we have the 3D printer is now down to <laughs> under three bills, depending on who you talk to, and there's different models of the things, but two to three bills, you can you can crank one out, you can you can have one firearms technology went beyond. Nobody really, I guess a few Beretta, nobody really brings out a new pistol anymore with an aluminum receiver. You notice that. Nobody's really investing in aluminum anymore. Um, They're all going, of course, to polymer, like the Glocks. The Glocks kind of started it, even though there were a few around before then, like the VP70Z from Heckler & Koch and probably a couple others. But um, those pistols are now made with polymer receivers now it's much better polymer and everything else than you can get out of a current 3d printer but the deal is you can actually make one a receiver for a Glock probably for a 1911 and probably for well assuredly for an AR-15 and produce some sort of functional firearm Um, they're not as good they don't last as long and and of course they have they have problems but but you can produce a firearm and no one I know of has ever done any kind of accuracy testing and we're really talking about receivers you still need a barrel slide you can't make springs you can't make some of the hardened parts you you basically make housings um, is really what you're making with a lot of these things and even though there is some you know, with very simple milling and lathing equipment, you can make a barrel. Um, I'm sure the quality is nothing that's going to win you any medals at, at Camp Perry, but it might be safe enough so you can actuate a cartridge. But um, this is so so really producing your own firearm um, from kind of scratch without having a, a complete barrel slide or upper receiver and 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 all that it's pretty nascent and it's probably not producing the kind of weapon you really want it's producing that that lower end type of deal and uh, so so there we are we are at the point where people can afford to produce some of this stuff and you know, is it really going to revolutionize gun ownership? Is it going to make all these technical laws that the EU has obsolete? I would say no. What they're going to do is you you can build anything you want. You can go build a machine gun. You can get the parts to a Sten gun, the part, the you know, the schematics and blueprints and build one. That's not a problem. The problem is ownership is verboten you know you can't do that according to the law they regulate that you can you can build it but you then once it's complete or mostly complete and you show an intent to build all kinds of things um, essentially you you are now a criminal because you're building something that's prohibited so that's how they're going to go after these things they're not going to bother to try to regulate 3d printers and everything else they're they're just going to say if you produce a firearm with it you have to register it you have to do uh several things with it and that's that's how they're going to get around it uh there are some designs like the the famous there's two liberator pistols one is the stamped one they used in world (laughs) war ii that they you know, they, they made about a million of these things and they supposedly dropped them to resistance units. And the deal was you would you would kind of hand load this thing it was manually operated. You, you put single shot type of deal and, and you'd go up to an enemy, to one of the enemies who's standing there with a rifle and obviously not paying very much attention. And you put this up to his head and you shoot him and take his rifle and his kid and his ammo and everything. A very fanciful type of, of deal. You know, I mean, just very fanciful. Uh, just not going to work and it really didn't I don't think there's any any uh, even anecdotal stories of these things doing that to any great degree but in, in in homage to that they've nicknamed this one and it kind of has like a it looks like an AR pistol grip and a simple trigger mechanism and a one of these plastic barrels that's about the size of a beer can to constrain the pressure and it's a single shot pistol and I'm just sitting there going well you could manufacture something better than that with stuff you could probably buy at a hardware store so I don't think that that's going to be the great threat to to any of this gun regulation or anything the fact that you can print something out that can work maybe a couple times an actuated cartridge is no different than buying stuff down at the hardware store and kind of assembling it with with your home tools and drill press and all that. So you know there and, and there's gonna be no real impetus. Nobody's really going to do this because nobody sees the value in that kind of gun. You notice if these guys really wanted to be off the off the grid, if you will, um Nobody has plans that I've seen, and I've looked around a little bit, and and maybe they're out there, but I haven't seen them. Nobody makes plans for a 3D printed cap and ball revolver, okay? And why is that? Well, that's because they're effectively unregulated in most places and you can go down to Cabela's, buy one that's made out of metal and is much better in every way and, and be done with it. You know, you, you can be done with it um, or find a used one. They're usually a lot of them, especially the uh, brass framed ones. Which is brass is better than plastic. I hate to tell these guys that, but brass is a lot better than plastic. Um, even the brass framed ones, you can you can find those used for a hundred bucks. I mean, um, you just can. You know, if you look around, you'll find somebody who's getting out of their cap and ball pistols, and they have the, and and those brass framed ones bring a lot lower price. So, so there you go. I mean, nobody's doing that, and you would think that would be the place they would go because, you know, they could you could be completely self-sufficient if you could uh, make a cap and ball and then try to figure out some way to use match heads or toy caps or something as percussion caps. Um, You know, make your own powder, do all that kind of stuff. Do all that kind of stuff that could cost you a few fingers. (laughs) So, but nobody's really trying that. So it's just another means of production. And it's not anything that uh, uh, is going to be It's not going to be able to change the BS, the PSBC, no, the BSPC that you see in the European Union. I mean, I have a lot of European friends. I like European people, okay? I like people in Europe. When I was living over there, I had all kinds of friends. So I'm not talking about everyone in Europe. I'm talking about the kind of the politically correct leftist things that run Europe. Those people are bullshit. They're bullshit. The rules are bullshit. They're bullshit people, and they're wrecking their own countries. They're wrecking them. They let in thousands of potential terrorists from the Middle East, so that Paris, Gay Paris, uh, you know, has got has got all kinds of people running around with AK-47s, doing the Charlie Hebdo stuff, and they don't. They're not smart enough to link that to immigration. So they're not going to be smart enough to understand the nuances of gun legislation. They're just not. They, they just don't get it. And uh, so they're BS people. They come from BS countries. And their models for gun control and everything else are complete BS. That's what they are. And so they're not real people. They're not real anything. They're a bunch of spoiled, entitled socialist turds that are wrecking their own countries. So the fact that you can print something that's a single shot pistol or an AR lower or something else on a 3D printer is not going to phase them. They're just going to make it illegal. They're just going to make it illegal to have, illegal to do, and illegal to have. So 3D printing is not going to change anything. It's not going to change anything here. Um, you can't It'll be decades before you could produce something that will equal today's kind of Glock, Sig, Smith and Wesson, to a smaller degree Walther plastic FN plastic gun technology. It'll be decades before you can produce that, and even then, you're still out of the you're still out of the realm of producing something that's going to be really accurate, really good. You know, it's uh, you still have to make those steel parts because frankly barrels slot and usually slides and and firing pins and other things you're going to need springs and you're going to need, you know, steel parts that are made to a, to a pretty, pretty high standard of manufacture. Now, where they do have some room are in some sort of accessories. You can 3d print certain magazines. That's a good deal. Because, hey, you throw a spring and a follower in it and you 3D printed an AR mag or a Glock mag or whatever kind of mag it is, you probably have less than five bucks in it. And you know, in competitions, we all know what happens to magazines they get trashed. And a lot of guys are going to be tired of a $40 or $50 mag hitting the ground 20 times during a competition. So there there could be a deal where you could make them and they're apparently they can make Glock mags that are relatively durable. They do wear out faster and probably a lot faster, but hey, you can just then take the internals, the spring and the floor plate and the follower and pop it into another cheap 3D printed body and there you have you, you know you have essentially a new magazine again. So, you know there there is some room for that. I know I was looking on the web and one guy was making for the old um, for the Schmidt-Ruben Swiss rifles, the 1911 rifles, they had kind of a cardboard and aluminum um, clip and block clip, if you will, for their ammunition. Well, those things are impossible to find. They don't last. They were never designed to be used over and over again, so therefore finding them is, is all very difficult and they're expensive when you do, but they can 3D print those out of plastic, the same thing, to the same dimensions. It works the same way. Things like that are probably smart. Whole firearms, probably a completely different deal. Okay, we're now going to transition into my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers, and uh, we got some got some good ones today. We went a long way on all this other stuff. There's probably some things we won't get to but that's okay okay first question and god when somebody finds out you have a sig 210 all of a sudden little little questions come popping up here's one what happened to the american-made sig p210 super target six inch barrel there was a larry vickers video that featured it prominently but we've never seen the gun where is it well I don't really know but I can I can give you some educated guesses First of all I would say that they probably made a couple of them to see if they could do it they probably shoot very well they're probably very nice guns but their corporate strategy and corporate strategists probably figured out that this is going to they're only going to sell so many SIG 210 targets okay that's a pretty pretty much of a a fairly narrow market so if you have two models they're competing for the same buyers so what you're doing is you're not building a product that's going to expand your market you're actually gonna close it for one of the two which means you will make the five-inch barrel ones that nobody wants or the six-inch barrel ones that nobody wants because they'll be buying the other one so I think that's why they decided not to bring it out if you really have to have one there are custom at least one custom gunsmith that'll make you one but that will probably cost you I don't know if it includes the cost of the pistol or not but it's gonna cost you about 4k to 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 bring that bad boy home that's an awful expensive inch Um, I think another reason why is they probably shot identically and and it's easy to see that. I mean the 5-inch one is a precision gun put together if the 6-inch one is made to the same standard which is a good high standard uh, they make a good gun Uh, maybe that extra inch doesn't make that big of a difference and of course making the 6-inch gun is going to be a lot more expensive it's going to require different tooling. It's easier to make a gun start with a standard model and make it shorter than it is to make it longer sometimes so, I know they had plans to come out with a carry version, and that's nobody's seen that yet. The only two versions are the target and the standard, which are the same gun, same length. One's got adjustable sights, one has fixed sights. As much as I really, and I really like the way the standard model looks, but if you're going to get a gun that good, you really owe it to the gun and to yourself to get adjustable sights so that you can hit exactly where you're aiming, because that's where you that's why you buy it. You buy a Sig 210 because it's very very accurate and it hits. If you do your part, it hits what it shoots at. So uh, that's the that's a deal. I don't think you'll ever see the six inch one. I think it's just uh, it's probably not good enough. If it's if it's even any better at all, if it is, and I say that's a big if, uh, it's not enough to make a difference. So they just economically kept with the uh, the other one and i'm i'm totally good with that they they've got to make money too okay what happened to the socom mark 23 mod 0 offensive pistol that was adopted by u.s socom in the late 90s as an offensive handgun and a system which had a silencer and a few other things okay um I don't know a whole lot about that. I, I was not a special operations guy that fooled with those. I did something else. So I, n- I never had access to them. So I never was trained on it, never used it. So get that straight up. I am not the guy who was who's tried to use those. The guys I know who did <laughs> said they didn't want to carry it because it's a big heavy clunk and it does not give them any capability over. They would. I knew guys that would rather carry M9s, stock U.S. military M9s, the same one they hand to, you know, an Air Force security personnel, or they would hand to Army medics or whatever else. That same M9 was the one that they were they were actually going for over the over this because, frankly, it was kind of designed, in my opinion, when I look at it. The intent was to use it in very, very high end tier one specialized operations where you couldn't carry a rifle, but you needed a very accurate suppressed weapon and accuracy was a big part of it. And they're good guns. They're really good guns and they were very accurate. Um, you know, they, maybe maybe they needed a brace. Maybe they needed to contact the... Maybe if they contact the ATF now and get braces for them, they'll be good to go. But um, it's just too big a gun. It wasn't a good-duty sidearm. It was a very, very specialized tool. I don't know if they've ever been used. I was not, you know, I was not high-speed enough to get one. I'll tell you that straight up front. But the guys I know who, who are high-speed enough, um, none of them ever really mentioned it liked it or anything else so uh, never never thought much of it never really saw them. you know it took I think they were holding him in reserve for that kinda of very very specific mission profile um, and and a very very only the very very elite top-end high-end tier one kinda of guys we're gonna use those Okay, why is Walther seemingly going to steel framed pistols? You know, I've noticed that. they brought out a steel they, they brought out a target, which was a target model. What was it the Q4 target Q5 target? I can't remember. Um, that was on a polymer frame, and that, that thing was selling for at one time, like before before all the madness started, that thing was selling for 699 or 799 through CDNN or somebody. And, and, you know, that was very tempting. It's very tempting. But I kept thinking, why are they, you know, why are they letting these things go? And usually, maybe not always, but usually when something starts getting through CDNN, it's stock they kind of want to get rid of. And it's kind of maybe because something better is coming along. And lo and behold, they had a steel-framed version of that pistol come out. And the steel frame... Um, as, Evidently, a very, very good pistol. It's quite expensive, even more expensive than the SIG 210 Target. Um, it's a very good pistol, I'm sure. Um, I looked at one, and and frankly, it, it did not... Two things. It did not feel good in my hand. That is purely subjective. That is purely just me. That is that is my hand. Did My hand, no likey. My hand, no likey. The other thing I didn't like was it had... This very, very modern appearance to it. And I'm a traditionalist, so again, this is me, no likey. Um, all these kind of lightning cuts they put in these things and trying to make it look very, very cool, you know, with it looked very, very science fiction. Not not my cup of tea. Not my cup of tea at all. So I saw it. At, the reason I think they came out with a steel frame was because obviously the polymer frame version was not shooting up to their expectations they may have shot very well and they may shoot actually better than most duty polymer frame pistols I I would not doubt that they that they can outshoot those by virtue of the sights and the improved trigger and all this other stuff but I bet there was some flexing in the frame or there was something that was keeping them from achieving their accuracy goals had to be so I think they, uh, they basically went, have been going to steel because it makes, number one, Walther right now, before the transition to steel frame pistols, is just another plastic gun manufacturer. You know, they, hey, they're up there with Glock and FN and, and Ruger and Smith and Wesson and uh, whoever else is making them. You know, I mean, whoever else is doing it, they're doing it too. So, um, you know, they can do that or they can stand, you know, away from the crowd. And you stand away from the crowd by offering a product that is different. So they've taken their innovations and they've made it to steel. And I'm actually surprised. I thought they would go to aluminum to get the rigidity and everything else. But they've gone to steel. So I tend to believe that since they're probably not stupid, that they've done all kinds of testing and maybe they've done maybe they have a polymer frame target pistol they have the the aluminum frame and they have the steel frame and they have examples of each one and they do a shoot off and they find out that the steel frame pistols outperform the polymer frame ones and the aluminum frame ones and that's why they went the way they went that's why I think they did it I'm actually kinda kinda glad to see it I still don't really care for the styling yeah, I, you know, I kind of, with me, Walther's kind, of, kind of peter out. I like the P99. I thought that was that was very cool. And uh, I like the P5. I thought the P5 was just very cool. But, you know, that's just my taste. Uh, and the earlier Walthers I love. You know, P38s, P1s. I love PPK. And that brings us to our next question. P-P-K, The what do you think of the Walther P-P-K in 22 for CCW? Well, like any any pistol, if it's reliable enough, and it's meets your concealability requirements, uh, I, it's not a bad choice. Um, it is somewhat underpowered for what people want these days, but there are a lot of situations where a and the PPK is a very nicely packaged pistol. It's big enough you can put your hand hand on it any place and it, it feels good in the hand it just feels good but it's small enough you can really drop it in a pocket uh, drop it you know and, and um, there are a lot of little pocket holsters you can get for it but it's a very very good very concealable it's a very I find it it's thin enough it doesn't stick out it's a nice little pistol very nice and you know a 22 is better than nothing and uh, uh, you know, the, some of these, some of these other pistols are just too wide. It's like, there are a lot of nice, those small Glocks are very, very nice, but they're also kind of blocky, you know, the, um, and they're going to, they're going to print, but this is something that's, uh, um, definitely you could use. So I think it's, it's not a bad deal at all. If you're willing to accept the fact that a 22 coming out of any pistol, but a 22 coming out of a short barrel pistol like that, um, definitely, uh, does have some, power limitations. So there there is that one. Okay, let's move to our last question and our last question is what will be the next great innovation in firearms design? And I talked about this, well, before all the madness happened. Uh, you know, basically, it, and I kind of always look at things in the military context, so, you know, for sporting rifles, I don't know. I don't know if there will be another one, you know, the the bolt action hunting rifle has been refined over the last few years a few years meaning like 60 (laughs) like 60 years 70 years maybe Uh, so I don't know where where that's really going to be going they've, they've just made them you know incrementally better and better but with military weapons what what is the next thing hey look we okay we went to intermediate cartridges so that's already been done and, and we're not going back to that. We're not going to go a lot bigger. We're just going to go back to that. We're just going to keep those. So optics were another revolution, but you know we've done that now. You know you can put night. You know with just a flipping a few levers, you can switch out your day sight for a night sight. You can have a laser. You can have an infrared laser. All that kind of good stuff. All those aiming aids, marksmanship aids that you could put on optical or thermal or you know however however you're using those things all those things can be on your rifle so there's no there's no real revolution there there may be some better ones just like the ones nowadays are better than the uh, old starlight scopes from the vietnam era but you know those, those are they are what they are the next one will be, in my opinion, what causes the most stoppages in a firearm. And that will be magazines. They may design better magazines. And the other the other side of the coin, which I think really think would be a you know, to me that's just a refinement. A better magazine is a refinement. But we will the next the next real revolution as you put it in context will be going from using the chemical power of the cartridge to using an electromagnetically and I'm just using that as an example a cycled bolt so when you pull the trigger you actuate the cartridge but, the, but you don't really need you don't need the cartridge impetus to push the bolt back and, and chamber the next round it'll be done electromagnetically and it'll make it a lot more reliable. It'll also mean that I can have an, a suppressor that I can just put on the end and I can put in my subsonic rounds and my rifle's still gonna function. I'm not I don't have to worry about, hey, is you know, what's the port pressure and, and do I have enough oomph to cycle the bolt and you know all the rest of this. All the rest of that can kind of go away. Because I know the gun's going to work because it cycles electromagnetically. If you take the firing pin out and you cycle it, it'll just, it'll cycle. If you have a 30-round magazine, it would just kick one round in and another round out until there's no more rounds to put in there. And it'll still be going back and forth if you want it, you know. It's that kind of a thing. It'll look kind of like that. You won't need the chemical power of the cartridge to cycle the weapon. And that's going to make it a lot easier to do things... Um, you know, hey, if you're firing from a unconventional position and the weapon isn't exactly stable, you know, you don't have it in that pocket of your shoulder, but maybe you're holding it with uh, uh, one hand kind of out shooting around a corner or something, hey, it's still going to function. It's not going to... It's not going to basically say, well, it, it, it kind of goes back and, and there's too much give given it and the, uh, the bolt doesn't have enough energy to go forward because the rifle's moving around, you know. So you don't need the kinetic energy from the round to cycle the action. That'll be the next big thing. And how that would translate to civilian weapons, I don't know. That may be, at a certain point, it's almost like laws of robotics and other sort of things. At a certain point, they're going to develop a weapon that civilians won't have whether it's just like they have with explosive weapons you know you uh, i guess that's kind of a bad example because there are people who have m203 grenade launchers but you know just but they're not common you know it just at a certain point they will develop a weapon whether it's pulse beam or whether it's like this and they'll say you know what we're not going to make these for the civilian market and somebody else might Maybe somebody, maybe a private manufacturer will make them. But, um, you know, at a certain point, that that may not, they may make a weapon that they don't allow, that they just don't sell to civilians. And so we'll see how that goes. But, uh, no, that'll be the next one. it will It will definitely be an electromagnetically or somehow mechanically cycled bolt that will not rely on the cartridge to do it. And you already kind of have that with the minigun. You know, the minigun has a little engine on it or a little electric motor is really what it is. And a little electric motor runs the whole thing. So if you have a 7, and those things are, you know, predominantly 7.62 NATO. Oh. If you have a round that say, said only had um, half the powder in it, um, that's still going to cycle through. As long as that bullet does not get stuck in the bore, as long as that bullet exits the bore, hey, you're good to go, because that thing's just going to keep keep rolling around. It's not like it needs that recoil impulse to keep going. If you have that, if you have that same round in a 30 caliber Browning or an M60 machine gun or an M240, uh, that round is going to cause a stoppage. So, you know, that's the that's the difference there. So that brings to an end. This episode of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is, you can always leave me a message on Podbean, which is our primary carrier, or you can uh, email me at kbmakel at com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. You put a question there, we will answer it in the next podcast after we've had a chance to think about it a little <laughs> bit. Anyway, So I hope that 2021 is a better year than 2020 and, uh, you know, keep shooting, keep into the hobby and keep after the politicians. This is Old School Guns, out.